This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, can a shrimp punch through glass? Is there such a thing as a perfect genetic love match? And how deep do you need to go underwater before it becomes totally dark? It is Q&A time. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, here are the panel of people who are going to answer the questions for you this week. Kate Fell is a postdoctoral researcher. She's in the Department of Physiology and Neuroscience at Cambridge University, where she studies the eyes of mantis shrimps. How about that? So uh, did you have an eye for science early on? Kate, is that what took you down that pathway? Yeah, my mom used to do uh, Mr. Wizard science experiments in the kitchen with us when I was a kid and like create vacuums with glass and water and just imagine a penny. And then I also had my own little, I guess, toy microscope as a child like the one that you have to use a mirror to light up and I would stick stuff under that all the time and I had yeah. a microscope so it's amazing isn't it um, what you can do these days to stimulate the young mind yeah yeah you actually you can even get like microscope adapters for your phone now to actually turn it into a microscope thank you Kate uh, also with us uh, Philip Broadwith he's a science journalist at the Royal Society of Chemistry so did you have a chemistry set then Philip is that what took you down that route I didn't actually ever have one. My sister did, uh, and I did some of the stuff with her. But I think the thing that really got me going with science is I grew up on a farm, and I was always out with my dad, like, fixing bits and bobs, like welding or fixing the tractor or whatever. And that involves a lot of problem-solving and, you know, just fixing stuff with the stuff that you have to hand. So I think that's probably where a lot of it came from. So you didn't become a farmer then? No, I was actively discouraged. (laughs) (laughs) I won't ask why. Sitting next to Philip is Patrick Short, who's a geneticist, and he actually works on inherited diseases. So why is DNA called DNA, Patrick? Uh, Well, it's an acronym. You're supposed to say Dana. (laughs) Dana. (laughs) I'm just kidding. What, What do you work on? Uh, So I work on specifically developmental disorders. So we look at a big group of families here in the UK where the child has an undiagnosed 
developmental disorder and try to figure out what's causing it from a genetic perspective. What sorts of disorders? Uh, so it can be intellectual disability, uh, autism, any sort of developmental delay. And what took you down that path? So I've always been interested in math. Uh, that was kind of my first love, but I wasn't ever really a, a theorist. I really liked the practical aspects of it. And I, uh, I fell in love with biology and how messy it was and thought it would be cool to take those uh, that math interest and apply it to genetics. And it's a pretty exciting and quickly growing field. Great to have you with us. Also here, friend of the program, been a little while since you were last on though, uh, Matt Middleton. You're an astrophysicist. So when Thank did you. you start gazing skyward then? What took you down that path? Oh, well, I think initially I collected fossils and that didn't work out very well. <laughs> they, uh, they, just, they just sat there. What do you mean? Looked, you just didn't find any? Or? Uh, well, I, they just sat there. I just collected a load of minerals and thought, oh, these are good. Uh, so I got into science and I thought, no, okay. I watched a load of sci-fi in the 80s and 90s. I mean, who didn't watch Star Trek Next Generation? And he looked at Patrick Stewart and went, yeah. Yeah, I want, I, want, I want a piece of that. And then that was it. I just got into astronomy. It's like, why not? It's amazing. And it's... now you study black holes. I do study black holes. Yeah, yeah. There you well, go. Great to have you with us. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. That's uh, Matt Middleton. Let's kick off with this wonderful question. Hello, my name is Anya Joseph and I am in year five. Why do I see the clouds moving? Do I see the clouds moving because of the spinning of Earth or due to wind? Nice, easy one to get us started with. Who would like to take that? Philip, that sounds like something a bit chemical, a bit atmospheric. Why do we see the clouds moving in the sky? What's going on? Yeah, well, I'd say, Anya, there's a, there's a little bit of both of those things happening. So the spin of the Earth does have an effect, but the biggest effect is probably the wind. But the interesting thing is that the wind at high altitude where the clouds are can be totally different to the wind at the surface where you're standing, which is why you might sometimes see the clouds going one way and feel the wind blowing the other way. But everything's spinning in the universe, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> Pretty much everything is spinning. Well, yeah, I mean, angular momentum is everywhere. I mean, look at the formation of the solar system. It formed a big big ball of gas and dust, and, and it was rotating, and that's why the planets now rotate. I mean, that's where I was going rotates. with that, that point, that the Earth is turning. But why is the Earth turning, as are the other planets in our solar system? It's, it's because they had spin to start with. It's absolutely. They, they formed from a protoplanetary disk, so that it was rotating... And it was collapsing down and condensing, and angular momentum is a conserved quantity. So the final product was also spinning because it didn't couldn't get rid of couldn't get rid of that energy, couldn't get rid of that rotation. So absolutely, this is why they're spinning. I was watching a stunning documentary on the Channel BBC Four the other day about the Voyagers because they're forty. It's forty years since the Voyager probes were launched, and one of the commentators on that program pointed out that actually they're making a two hundred and fifty million year orbit of the galaxy. And when you it's think amazing. of it like that, they're actually spinning. They're actually circuiting all the way around the galaxy, around the central black hole in our galaxy every 250 million years. I think he said 250 million. Something like that. Some, it's an incredible it's number. An incredible distance, yeah. isn't it? Well, thank you for that. So basically, coming back to Anya's question, it's the Earth is spinning, therefore the air is moving, and the air is also moving in, in random directions because there's additional air movements from input from the sun and so on for them. Yeah, so the wind comes from the sun heats up the land and, and over the water you get convection, which is air heats up, it gets lighter, it moves up, but then you have to have more cold air coming in underneath to replace it. So that starts the whole thing moving. And that's where the kind of wind comes from. Um, but wind's really important because it picks up moisture, which is where the clouds come from. The whole atmospheric chemistry and physics of that system is, is important, but also intriguing. Philip, thank you very much. Let's uh, turn to you now, Kate, because Jack has got in touch with us uh, from Facebook with this one. Hi, Naked Scientists. My question is, why is ocean marine life more colourful than in lakes? So this has a lot to do with the light environment 
underneath the water. And so in uh, like a coral reef system, which is probably most famous for being super colorful, the water is what we call blue, 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 dead, dead, dead. So it's super clear um, and it really blue and gorgeous. And that's why we like to go on vacation there. And so when you live in a clear water, you can be really colorful and send lots of visual signals to your neighbors or to someone you want to mate with and all that kind of stuff. But in uh, lakes in particular and freshwater systems that are very closely tied to the land, you end up with a lot of dissolved organics. And there's a really great word for that that's called gelbstoff that just means yellow gook or yellow stuff. And so uh, when you're in this darker, murkier, light-absorbing water, you can't send a signal as readily. So they tend to be fish and things will so tend to be bother. browner. Yes, well, so it's more like they evolve to fit in the environment that they live in. Well, um, if you're not using bright colours, how do they find each other then? Uh, well, I mean, system? a lot of chemical signals or sound vibrations. Like, there's way others, a lot of other sensory things. But with that, I must make you aware of the freshwater darter, which is one of the most beautiful, colorful types of fish I've ever seen in my life. They're only found in the southeastern United States. And the males of these, these species, they just buck up to these, like, rainbow beautiful things in the spring with, like, red and green. And just, I mean, they're rainbow fish in these streams so that they can find the ladies. Patrick. The colors obviously are great for attracting mates. Doesn't it make them more likely to get attacked by a predator as well? Is there some sort of trade-off or dance that they do? Uh, yeah, well, so you can use colorful signals as a sexual signal, which there's risk with that. But if it didn't work and they all got killed off, then they wouldn't survive. So they're, obviously there's some behavioral thing they're doing to overcome the risk of being really flashy. Um, but you can also be colorful to blend into your background. So if your background is really colorful, then maybe you'll be really flashy as well. Lovely. One other thing that's very colourful, given we have someone who's a space scientist here, Matt, when we see pictures of our solar system depicted, the planets are given colours. Is that accurate? It can be. I mean, some people like to fiddle with the colours of various things. If you've ever seen a picture of a nebula, you do get red and blue nebulae from scattered light. But when you look at the planets, what you're mostly seeing is either the rock, in the case of Mars, which have a thin atmosphere, you're seeing the chemicals themselves in the atmosphere. I mean, Neptune and Uranus are the, are the case in point. They're very blue. Neptune is bluer than Uranus because it has a higher content of methane. What happens is that that methane absorbs the red light coming from the sun and it bounces back the blue. And this is why we see it. So it's it's not inaccurate. It's not just artistic license when we give planets colour. There There is some genuine information coming back in the light from those planets, which means we can say, ah, oh, look, that they must have a lot of chemical X in the atmosphere, and we, we give them that colour with reason. Absolutely, Chris. Absolutely. Let's come back down to Earth for a second, because this one, I think, is ideal for you, Philip. It's coming from Lauren on Twitter, and this is what she wants to know. How does perfume work? Could I make my own perfume out of flowers as a present? So... Something else that's pretty and nice, flowers. Can we make perfumes from them? Yes, well, uh, so a lot of the chemicals in perfumes do actually come from flowers, particularly damask roses and things like that, things that are very highly scented. But a, a perfume, a commercial perfume, will be a mixture of many, many ingredients. And the more expensive perfumes can have hundreds of ingredients. Some of those are fragrance molecules and there'll be some that are very light and they evaporate very easily and they give you very floral scents but then there are some bigger heavier ones that might stick around a bit longer and give you the more woody or earthy scents and they might even be really horrible if you got them in high concentration but in the small concentrations that you find in perfume they they just add to that sense and that's all part of i mean our sense of smell is insanely complicated and when you're not really smelling individual molecules you're smelling a ensemble effect of all the molecules in there 
But the other thing that there is in a commercial perfume is that there are things that will either help the molecules to stick to your skin a bit more so that they released over time or they're to stabilize it in in where it's in the bottle so it doesn't go off if you make your own which is perfectly possible you can extract the scent compounds from the flowers petals which is where they're most concentrated using either hot water or sometimes oils or coconut oil or something like that it's perfectly possible but what you'll get is a less complex scent and it will probably not last very long because if you want to try and concentrate it, you have to heat it and then you can destroy some of the molecules or they'll evaporate and that kind of thing. So you might end up smelling, but not the way you wanted to smell in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and obviously if you pick the wrong flowers, there's a potential hazard if you pick something that's that's irritant or you know, and if, if you're concentrating those things down. So you have to be a bit careful about what you pick, but you can definitely do it. And there are recipes online that will tell you, give you more detailed instructions. So it could go wrong, be careful, Matt. Yeah, so I'm, I'm basing this on an episode of Futurama. So you can see where I source a lot of my information from. Isn't there like some horrible thing from a whale, which is supposed to provide a base for some of these things, right? Uh, Yeah, it's called ambergris. It's basically whale vomit. It sometimes gets washed up on the beach and people find it. And it's it's worth a phenomenal amount of money. Like so you can eat a couple of kilos and it might be worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. We're going to the beach now, Chris, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not really stinks. Does it? Have you have, have you it, found some? No, I've never found it. But by all reports, it, if you get it in the pure form and in that kind of concentrated, it really, really reeks. But in small amounts, in the in the perfumes, it smells. It adds. It's like musks from yaks and stuff. They really reek if you get them concentrated. Talking but, of, of things that whales issue, marine biologists are quite interested in whale earwax as well, aren't they? Because you get earplugs of of wax from certain whales, which actually they have rings in them deposited over time, a bit like tree rings. Do you know about this, Kate? And, uh, I have actually not you heard could, about this. Effectively, it's locking away a, a chemical profile of what's going on in the whale over time. So if you find one of these earplugs from a, a whale, actually it may record the entire whale's lifetime exposure to various things and, it's, and it's, uh, what its hormones are doing at various times written into this plug of earwax. Super cool. I wonder how much that's worth. Well, it's worth <laughs> a fortune to the scientists who want to study it. Patrick, here's a question for you from Katie. Can I change my DNA? Uh, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean... Uh, Ten years ago, the answer probably would have been absolutely not. But in the last uh, five years or so, there's been an amazing revolution in genome editing technology. So just a, a month or two ago, the first FDA drug was approved to treat pretty rare form of blood cancer. And the way that it worked is actually by taking blood out of the patient, editing the DNA of the immune cells so that they would target the cancer specifically and then putting them back into the patient to target it. Um, there's also other great examples like muscular dystrophy, for instance. So people have a genetic disease that causes their muscles to not develop properly. And there are therapies now that have already worked in animals and they're starting to test them out on humans to actually go in and fix the mutation in the muscles. So it's certainly possible. Would you do this at the moment, though? Because there's been a lot of fanfare about the whole idea of going in and rewriting bits of DNA. But in the examples you've given, one of them, Kimria, the drug that Novartis have this year got lined that involves taking cells out of the body and changing them so that you know that when you put the cells back into the body you've got a reasonable degree of confidence that you've done something right and you're not introducing something you shouldn't in the case of muscular dystrophy the the treatments there are a temporary like sticking plaster they're not physically rewriting that person's dna are they but now we've got tools being developed in laboratories things like crispr where people could physically go into your body and reprogram the dna in your cells which is i think that's a a 
bit different than the two examples you've discussed. Yeah, so I, it's, I definitely wouldn't try it at home. And there are some people on the internet who will talk about biohacking, editing mm. your own DNA, certainly not safe and it probably doesn't do anything at this point. But well, someone sent me a video to look at that she's making a documentary. She may have released it now, but it was a chap who literally was doing doing this gene editing on himself at home in California. And I was quite shocked, to be honest. I mean, he was just injecting himself with this stuff, saying, there you go, I, I am rewriting the DNA in my muscles. It sounds terrifyingly dangerous yeah, to me. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think it's pretty much snake oil. There's, the, the, I think the most likely thing that's going to happen to him is he'll accidentally hurt himself. You have billions of cells in your body and you've got to go in if you want to change the DNA in all of them, you've got to have some way to deliver this CRISPR enzyme to every cell in your body. So I think the more likely thing is that actually we'll start editing embryos. So families that want to make sure their child doesn't have a, a severe disease uh, will we'll use this technology to go in and edit it when it's just a couple of cells and not when you're already a full-blown organism. Phil? Presumably much easier to do that when you've only got a couple of cells to change and then it gets carried through as the thing develops, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a little bit of a difficult subject to research because you, you know, it's ethically difficult to get access to live embryos. But there are some with severe genetic diseases that labs are working on to actually see if they can correct it. So you might be able to have a successful pregnancy after correcting like beta thalassemia or one of these diseases. So just to summarise then, the bottom line is we can change DNA. People probably are changing DNA and there are circumstances where it's appropriate to do so. But at this this stage, it's very early in the process. It's probably a step too far because you may well do yourself harm and it's probably better not to do this except in in the right circumstances, which is a reasonable summary. Thank you very much, Patrick. Now, Matt, here's a question from Caitlin for you to have a stab at. You have binary systems in space, but I'd like to know... Are there ever trinary systems? Can you first of all define for us, Matt, what uh, Caitlin means by binary system? Absolutely, Chris. And Caitlin, thank you for a lovely question. So a binary system is where you have two stars that are orbiting around a common centre of mass. The way to think of that is imagine you've got a friend, let's hope you all have a friend, and you hold their hands and you spin around. You are basically pivoting around that common thing. It doesn't quite, it's not the greatest analogy, but if you imagine there are these two stars that are going around orbiting around that common centre of mass. Now, Can you get trinary systems or higher order systems? Absolutely you can. Absolutely. Most of the stars that we see, and if we look out on a clear night, they're going to be binary systems. There are lots of individual faint stars called red dwarfs, but we're not going to be able to see those. But it turns out that loads and loads and loads of these are also trinary systems. And in fact, you can also get quaternary, quintenary, etc., etc., etc. So just to get this right, you're saying when I look at the stars in the sky, I'm, I'm seeing not one source of that light but that's actually a pair or maybe three or even four little stars twiddling around each other so absolutely and, and i'm going to blow your mind here probably the most famous star that we look at the pole star that's a trinary system oh goodness kate oh what's the biggest system oh well i mean if, if, <laughs> uh, well i mean you can you can extend all the way to where you have star clusters where you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars that are all sort of interacting in a gravitational way so you, you can play that game endlessly. The problem is that the more you have, the more complicated those orbits become. In a trinary system, what you quite often find is you've got a binary, so you've got your two friends zipping around, and then you've got another star that's further around on a bigger orbit, and that's nice and stable and nice and easy. Uh, but the more stars you chuck in there, it becomes quite complicated and quite a messy thing. So what you'll find is that there's a lot of trinaries, fewer with four stars, fewer with five, fewer with six, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Just want to bring in Phil, but before I do, how do you know that this is the case? That that there, when, where we used to think it was just a star, now we're calling it binary and trinary and, and quaternary systems. So there's this wonderful thing called the Hubble Space Telescope. Some of you may have heard of. I hope all of our listeners have. And it was actually able to resolve out these points of light. You can also look at how they move. So you can get an idea from looking at the light itself that tells you about some of the motion. And you can reveal, this is how they look for exoplanets, you can reveal, ah, oh, there must be another must be another object in there somewhere. So as an astrophysicist, if you're looking at these kind of ternary systems, does the mathematics get exponentially harder the more stars you start to involve? Uh, that's, that's, that's quite an understatement. <laughs> uh, there are these people who work on n-body simulations, and those get extremely complicated. The most extreme version of these is where we have these simulations of the universe as it formed. So those are these incredible n-body simulations about dark matter and gas and, and supermassive black holes. So yeah, it gets ugly very, very quickly. Matt Middleton, thank you very much. So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com slash eLife. Now, we have a panel of experts here on The Naked Scientist taking your science questions. So if there's something you ever wanted to know, these are the sorts of shows to get your thirst for knowledge assuaged. Send in your questions to at Naked Scientist on Twitter. You can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Still to come in this show, could genetic engineering create super dinosaurs? What chemicals, when mixed together, can create a fire? And why does Venus rotate differently to all of the other planets? Now, one of the things we talk about here on The Naked Scientist quite often are myth conceptions. This is bits of scientific dogma that are trotted out religiously, but actually they have very dubious scientific underpinnings. So I thought it'd be quite nice to ask our panellists whether they've come across any myths in their particular field. So, Kate, let's start with you. What's your choice of myth? So a lot of times, like at museums or in toy stores, they'll have these compound eye glasses so you could see like a fly because flies don't have eyes that are like ours. They're made up of thousands of these little facets. And so you can theoretically, you can put on these glasses and then you can see like a fly. But that is totally wrong because the way that these glasses work is they multiply the image you're seeing into just thousands of the same image over and over and over again. And so it looks really crazy. But really, a compound eye works where each facet focuses on a specific point in space and then they they all get assembled like a pixel in an image. And so they just have a lower resolution image of the world than, like, say, we do, because our eyes are just different. Don't astronomers do a similar thing with telescopes, Matt? They have telescopes that have individual little facets that can then take a a miniature snapshot of a part of space that they're looking at, and then they reassemble the whole thing into a big picture. Well, essentially what they're doing there is they, they, they make these new dishes, these reflecting dishes, out of all these segments, and they control those very, very carefully. So they're not really looking at a single a single thing. They're having to work together in unison to be able to focus something. 
but the the ability of these new instruments is absolutely phenomenal. You have all these little little micro motions on these on these mirrors to create an absolutely stunning image, even if the weather is absolutely terrible. So you, you know, can manipulate each of the individual facets, you which you can, can adapt what they're seeing to the conditions. Absolutely, adaptive optics. That's that's what it's called. Now the other thing it says here, your choice of myth is that black holes aren't holes. Oh. I'm disappointed. Are you are you genuinely, Chris? Uh, a little bit, because we all like to think of this sort of giant vacuum cleaner in space that's drawing everything in. But you're, you're yeah. saying that's not you true. Can, you can throw some sort of repugnant people in there. Um, the idea of black holes, the actual term, I mean, it's, it's kind of anecdotal, but it was actually coined during a lecture. Right. The, I mean, b- before you talk about a black hole, you also have to take a step back and remind yourself what a black hole actually is. And most people who do anything with astronomy will say, OK, it's the, it's the end of a star's lifetime. A massive star's collapsed down. There's no more forces to prevent that core collapsing. So it's going to go all the way down. It's going to essentially go down to an infinitesimal point containing all the mass. Now, the reality is you can make a black hole out of anything. Okay, you can make a black hole out of a pen. You can make a black hole out of Chris, which I highly recommend. Okay, all you have to do is compress him down, incredibly small, so that he actually sits inside what we call the event horizon. And when you go beyond the event horizon, not even light can escape from that body. Okay, so if you if you go near that event horizon, you won't necessarily be torn apart. Depends on the size of the black hole, but you are going one way and one way only, and that's towards a singularity. Okay, and that is a point which is so small, we don't yet have an idea of how to describe it. We need something called quantum gravity. There is one caveat. If the black hole is spinning, you don't get a singularity. You have something called a ringularity. Okay, and, and there's these ideas that maybe we can manipulate those and create wormholes. And then maybe, Chris, you'll finally have your hole. Well, one thing uh, that is often trotted out is that at the centre of galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole, and people say it's about the size of, say, Neptune or something, and it's influence, or, or maybe a bit bigger out to the size of where Neptune orbits, that kind of thing. So it's not literally a single point. There is something that's quite large sitting there. It has, right. it has physical dimension. What people normally talk about is the size of the event horizon. We consider that to be the surface, when in reality... It, it isn't, it's, you know, the definitions start blurring when we're talking about black holes. But that's normally what we, we discuss when we talk about the size of the event horizon. What's remarkable is that galaxies and the supermassive black holes grew together. Right? So something which is so small interacted with something which is billions and billions of times bigger. I think that's amazing. So it tells you the galaxy and the black hole had to know about each other. And that is phenomenal. Warps your mind as well as space time, doesn't it? A little bit, a little bit. Patrick, um, what's your choice of myth? So everybody knows about the risk of older mothers, you know, having children. But I think the thing that's not talked about enough is is the risk of older fathers. I think we have all these about egg freezing and we have all these societal norms that tacitly punish women for having children when they're older. But actually, the father's sperm is constantly multiplying. And every time it multiplies, it makes mistakes and it introduces mutations. And so the older a father becomes, the more likely they are to have uh, children with problems as well. Well, the Rolling Stones are doing all right, aren't they, with a combined <laughs> age between them of seven trillion years or so. I can't remember what it is yeah. now, but um, they're, they're all pretty ancient. They're doing okay. Yeah, no, they're not doing too bad. It's uh, it's about twice the risk or something from age 20 to 40 for men, and then it starts getting worse and worse after that. But it's just a roll of the dice every time. Matt, don't get a stun for libel. Right. <laughs> remember that Mick Jagger's trousers are so tight, I don't think he's got any sperms left. <laughs> he's got I think we'd better phone our lawyer. Kate? Do they just negate the effects of being old men by having children with very young women? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. It takes two to tango, so maybe uh, <laughs> maybe that's the Rolling Stone secret. <laughs> so maybe that's what women should be doing. 
Find yourself a nice uh, 25-year-old man, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about chemistry. Philip. So my, my twist of myth is that chemicals that are made by plants and animals are somehow different to exactly the same chemicals if they're made in a lab. If you're talking about an absolutely pure substance, there is absolutely no difference between the two. If you're talking about having like a real life thing it's very difficult to get very pure things so if you were thinking about a chemical that you've isolated from a plant or an animal versus one that you've synthesized in a lab and not purified very well then there would be differences between them because there'd be differences in the impurities in those things but the actual chemicals themselves no difference at all so when we talk about something being natural actually it's just stuffed full of other stuff that we didn't know was in there or or we didn't we we can't can't control the provenance of that but something that comes out of a lab actually have a better chance really of controlling the provenance so in in fact i'd rather have the lab version yeah potentially and that's the that's the other flip side of that is that people kind of have this perception that a natural chemical is somehow better for you than uh, one from a lab but you know strychnine is a natural chemical all lots of the poisons all of the poisons are natural things so you know that's also another myth and of course vitamin c has an e number as well doesn't it we'll back on to the questions um kate there's one here for you i would think it's from sam on facebook hi naked scientists is it true mantis shrimps can punch through glass can a mantis shrimp punch its way through glass so I've heard this one a lot, and uh, I have it on good authority from people who've experienced that say they've experienced this that this is possible. I personally have not experienced this in the decade I've been working with mantis shrimp. However, one time a colleague mailed us some rather large mantis shrimp. So we're talking like ten to twenty centimeters in length. So big, big guys. And they shipped them in some food Tupperware containers inside to... Were they for dinner then? No, no, no. They were for science. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's easy to get them in, keep the water in. And so they they put them in these Tupperware containers and then they put those in double bagged to make sure that the water stayed inside and they'd make it safely to Baltimore from California. And uh, when they arrived... All of the Tupperware containers were just shattered because these mantis shrimp were really, really angry to be shipped across the United States. And so, they didn't like the East Coast. They, no, thought, they thought California yeah, was better. Definitely West How Coast, did they do the damage? Every mantis shrimp is able to fire this this appendage that's spring-loaded. It's called their raptorial appendage, and they can either punch stuff with it or they can stab. It's one, uh, of, their, one of their pinches, is it? Uh, no, it's actually a modified part of their mouth. Right. Uh, so it's this specialized pair of mouth parts. And so these guys uh, actually, I'm pretty sure, were punching holes by spearing, by opening it up and just stabbing the plastic. But there are species that are more specialized for the punching and all of these big like bowling ball elbows that they'll just smash things. And so if you have a big enough one of those and you put it in a, an aquarium that maybe is not the thickest glass and they're angry, they could probably put a crack in it. <laughs> so note to marine biologists out there, when shipping your mantis shrimps, don't use Tupperware. Maybe use uh, some other instrument instead. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. With me this week are a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions. We have marine biologist Kate Feller, chemist Philip Broadwith, geneticist Patrick Short and astrophysicist Matt Middleton. If you'd like to get a question into a programme like this, then you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we've got a 
little quizette for everyone. So it's a chance for us to ask you some other questions. And we're going to divide you up into two teams. We do this each time we have a Q&A show. So team one, that's going to be Matt and Patrick. Team two is going to be Kate and Philip. Round one is science fact versus science fiction. So, Matt and Patrick, you may confer. I'm going to read you a scientific fact, and you have to tell us whether or not you think it's science fact or science fiction. So here we go. A hummingbird flaps its wings about 150 times per second. What do you think? Is, is, is that was an understatement? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's, okay. it's either that or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I've seen the videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really going. Okay, we, so you're going for true. I think we're going for true. Yes. Oh, oh no. no, it's more. I bet. No, I'm sorry. It, most hummingbirds actually flap their wings about 50 times a second. The fastest flapping record was 80 times a second. That was an amethyst wood star hummingbird. Well, so you're a little bit quick off the mark there, Matt. Oh. Okay, let's see if the others do any better. Let's move over to Kate and Philip. Question two. 250,000 mosquito bites would empty a human of blood. What do you think, Kate and Philip? Oh. 250,000. So we have about, what, nine pints, four and a half litres of blood? Metric in this studio, please. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I went there. Four and a half litres. So... No, I don't think so. They I can't take so. very much. No, it's like fractions of a milliliter. Yeah, they. Well, no, I, yeah, they're taking in. I wouldn't say they're taking in more than. So, what do you think? True or false? Milliliter. False. 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 Yeah. All right. Contain your enthusiasm. All right. Just let me let me read you this. It says, although <laughs> yeah, it's easy for them to say, isn't it? Although it probably would kill you though. Because a mosquito drinks about five millionths of a litre of blood, so it would take a million mosquito bites to empty all of the blood out of a human. But, having said that, losing 20% of your blood volume is potentially fatal. So without treatment, providing dinner for a quarter of a million mosquitoes probably would actually end not well for you. So there you go. We're on to the next round. What is bigger? Back to Matt and Patrick. Which is larger, the number of moons around Jupiter or the number of pencils you could make from the carbon in a human body? (laughs) Oh, no, it's got a lot. There's a huge number. Um, Oh, how how big's a pencil? (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) Pencil size. I don't think you can make many pencils. You can't. I mean, we're carbon-based, but but we're mostly water. So, oh, he's he's frowning. Uh, (laughs) What are you going for, pencils or Jupiter? Don't let him throw you off. Jupiter is more. Jupiter. You're going for Jupiter. Oh, <laughs> come on. It's not it's just a day. How small is pencils? Now, J- Jupiter's got 67 moons in orbit, as far as we know. Your body's 20% carbon. That's actually 15 kilos of carbon atoms in the average person. A pencil weighs a few grams, most of it yeah, being carbon. So it. you could make a few thousand pencils at least with the carbon who's, atoms who's, in the average person. Who's coming up with this? <laughs> Me. Right, back to Kate and Phil, who are in the lead at the moment. Which is greater, the distance travelled by light in one second or the distance to the moon. Oh, it's so how I mean, light's pretty fast. <laughs> so <laughs> hang on, one light second. <laughs> one light second. I really like light, so I want to yeah, go with that. <laughs> yeah. We're going for the moon or light? It's, it's got to be the light. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Let's do it. You're going for light. Yeah, light. Light speed. No! The answer is the moon. The average Earth-moon distance is 380,000 kilometres. The light distance light travels in one second is 300,000. Three times 10 to the 8 metres second, 300,000 kilometres in a second. So uh, you didn't get any marks for that. So currently it is still in the lead, Philip and Kate, with one point so far. On to round three. Back to Matt and Patrick. What letter won't you find in the periodic table of elements, Matt and Patrick? Oh, Oh no, of course it was. I is in there. Working your way through all 120 elements or something. We're going with J. 
You going Jay? They're off the mark. J doesn't appear in the table or in the names of any elements, but the letter Q is also not used, but it is in some temporary names that are given to elements that do contain that letter. For example, Ananquadium, which is now officially called Philip? Livermorium. No, it's... Fluorovium. 114. Okay, it is level pegging, and uh, it's all on this one. So, Kate and Philip, are you going to win or does it go to a tiebreaker? Which element in the periodic table? See, we've got a chemist question for balancing it up for everyone. Which element in the periodic table has the highest melting temperature? Listens, are you, Philip? Depends on the definition. So, tungsten is generally the one that's considered to have the highest melting temperature, but if you count carbon diamond, which doesn't really melt, Mm. Then bleh. I'm going to go tungsten. I think tungsten. Okay. Oh, uh, should have stuck to your guns. Um, carbon melts at 3,500 degrees. As you really said, a, di- a diamond will melt at 5,000 degrees with the right pressure. Uh, that is closely followed by that is closely followed by tungsten, which melts at 3,400 degrees, and that's why tungsten is used in conventional light bulbs, where the filament glows at 2,500 degrees. So it's tie break time. So it's all on this one. Are you ready? So I'm going to read you this and confer between the two of you on the quiet, and then we will go with a point being awarded to the person who gets or the team who gets closest. Right. If I laid 500 trillion E. coli bacteria end to end, for how far would they stretch? Some frantic scribbling going on here. (laughs) The physicists are trying to work it out. The chemists and the biologists are reasoning it out. Matt and Patrick, team, what do you think the answer is? Five, ten to the eight metres. Five times ten, that's five hundred million metres. Yep. Okay, five hundred million metres. What do you guys think? Five kilometres? Five thousand metres? Mm, no, you're, you're actually, I think, um, actually, it's, it's going to therefore be Matt and Patrick who are the mm. winners because, in fact, the way we calculated this, a single length of an E. coli bacterium is about three microns, which is three millionths of a metre. The five hundred trillion of them would therefore be one and a half million kilometres long. And to put that into perspective, the diameter of the sun is one and a half uh, million kilometres, so you could stretch all the way across the sun with that number of microbes. So actually, who, who therefore won? Because I, I guess these guys get, get the victory. So uh, it, it is a victory for Matt and Patrick this week. You get a prize beyond price. You get to be the Naked Scientist brain of the week. <laughs> well, still to come here on The Naked Scientist, could genetic engineering create super dinosaurs? And we'll be hearing about the noisy neighbours who are taking to the waters. But first, Philip got this question uh, in for you. Are there any chemicals that would create fire when mixed together? That came in from Nick. What do you think? Well, Nick, absolutely, yes, there are. They're used in rocket propellants all the time. They're called hypergolic mixtures. There's one called aerosine 50, which is a mixture of hydrazine and dimethylhydrazine, which have unstable nitrogen-nitrogen bonds, and then dinitrogen tetroxide. But it doesn't really matter what they are. The point is that when you mix them together, you get a chemical reaction to start with that generates a lot of heat. And then you have all of the things that you need for a fire. You have a fuel, and you have an oxidizer, which initially is the chemical oxidizer, but then... Once you've got a fire going, you can use oxygen from the air as the oxidizer, and then you've got a source of ignition. And this is why they're used in rocket engines for things like steering. You don't need an extra electrical system that can go wrong to fire the rocket. Or if you're wanting to power a missile, you've got something that you can store for long periods of time at relatively easy temperatures, as long as you can handle the corrosion. And then when you need to fire your rocket or missile or whatever, you can just mix the two and off you go. 
So there are some more readily available mixtures. I would say before I say any of this, that just be very careful. Don't really try this at home. Just watch the YouTube videos instead. Don't really try it at home or maybe... <laughs> just don't try it at home at all. Don't, don't try it at home. Don't right. try it at home. <laughs> And what are those? What are those readily available? Uh, so, mixtures? if you take glycerin, which just household glycerin used in baking, and potassium permanganate, which is a very highly oxidizing thing, and you mix those two together, you can generate fire. Okay. Is it like a, a bang fire or just a nice flame, like a Christmas pudding? It depends on the mixture. Some of them will will go on fire very quickly and very intensively, like the rocket fuels. Glycerine and permanganate, there's a kind of induction period where you have the chemical reaction going and they kind of just get hot and smoke and then you get a flame mm. and then it will just burn like a flare. Quite an intense fire because you've got a lot of oxidizer there, but it, it's just a fire. Best thing I ever saw was a couple of chaps from UCL came along and did a chemistry demonstration and they poured liquid oxygen on a digestive biscuit and lit it <laughs> and the, the flame was a metre and a half high, hit the ceiling. It was absolutely phenomenal. Well, you've got a high concentration of fuel, the, all of the carbohydrates from the biscuit and then you've got a huge amount of oxidizer, the liquid oxygen there. It's in massive concentration. But you still, for that mixture, need an ignition source. You need the, the he initial lit it with flame. a very long stick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we were closer than he was, put yeah. it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Philip, thank you very much. Patrick, here's one for you. Hi, Naked Scientists. Is there such thing as a perfect genetic love match? So should I be using some kind of app to work out who's genetically most compatible with me? What do you think? Are you trying to give me an aneurysm on air? <laughs> there are a number of different services like this that have popped up on the internet in the last, uh, especially in the last two or three years. So it's gotten now really inexpensive to sequence people's genomes and so there are, there are tests that people have heard of like ancestry.com 23andme that can tell you where your family's from that's fair enough um, but then there are a bunch of crazy ones like genetic love match yeah, i saw this one in the daily mail at one point uh, a couple months ago there's will your child be good at soccer or genomics.net and it, all of these are almost categorically snake oil so i worry very much about this because i think it will but it will give genetics a bad name and make it more difficult to do actual personalized medicine and these sorts of things in the future. Phil? There is a possibility of having preferred genetic things. So if you, if you were a carrier for a particular genetic condition, you would be better matched with someone who doesn't, have, doesn't carry that gene, so there's less chance of your offspring having those diseases. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So in that right. sense, you could, you, there would be favorable genetic matches. Yeah, but. so there's some science around um, what's called the HLA, which is a part of your genome that controls the immune system. And there's some science around, are you going to have pheromonal attraction to this person? But to the degree that it's genetically predictable is very low. Uh, this is true in mice, isn't it? If you put mice together and you give them the choice of which mate they would like, they will seek out the one which is most genetically distinct and different to themselves compared with mating with, say, a closer relative given a choice. So they can tell. It very well may be that they can tell, but I think Unfortunately, in humans, the social structures that we exist in might be a little bit more complicated than what you could construct in a laboratory condition. Okay. Do you think any or do any of these genetics dating services offer a service for post-hoc dating? So like if you start dating someone and you really Ooh, don't want to get, iffy, get too involved <laughs> with somebody who you're genetically like, both recessive carriers of something really bad. Is that out there yet? Yeah, well, so I think so. carrier <laughs> testing is a, is a very legitimate thing and, and uh, I think that's one of the first things that will become mainstream because there is principled science behind it. But maybe you're onto something. It's a good way to kind of 
tell someone we have to break up because the app says that we're <laughs> not a genetic love match and it makes it easier for everybody. <laughs> Gets you off the hook a little yeah. bit. Well, let's talk about something a little bit less controversial. Here's one for you to dive into, Matt. It was posted onto the Naked Scientist forum, which is nakedscientist.com slash forum. How does the moon impact tides, especially when it comes to supermoons? Matt, what do you think? Okay, so great question. The moon and the earth interact through gravity and it's what we call a tidal force. You know, clues kind of name in the name, it's a tidal force. We're talking about tides. Now, because the earth is a crust, it's it's solid, at least on the on the outside, and then you've got all these oceans. Now that the moon can pull, it can try and pull that crust, but it's not going to go anywhere. But the oceans, on the other hand, can because they can slosh around. So what you find is there's a bulge of water which tracks the motion of the moon. Uh, in a supermoon, we have the moon being as close as possible to Earth in its elliptical orbit. It's what we call perigee. Now, a supermoon, when we see it big and bright in the sky, and on a supermoon it's about 14% bigger than when it's absolute, when it's at its smallest, which is roughly the same difference between a 1p and a 2 pence piece. When that happens, we have an alignment of the Earth, the moon, and the sun. It's what we call perigee syzygy. Uh, can has, you spell that? I can now, yes. <laughs> S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Uh, so well, you can't do that quick. in Scrabble. <laughs> I know, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? I just have these things in my head. Um, so when you have perigee syzygy, which should create an L for something out of nowhere, um, then, then you have this supermoon. And because it's closer to the Earth, you have a stronger tidal interaction, so you have stronger tides. When the moon is a very long way away, it's called a mini-moon. Which I, I, I think obviously it might, it might be a micro moon. When, I, when I was moon. at school, um, one of my colleagues got caught outside at night. It was a boarding school, and the housemaster said to him, "Why have you been sent to me with this saying? You were doing a moony on the lawn outside the <laughs> boarding house. What's a moony?" So the kid turned around and said, "It was seven star jumps, sir." <laughs> got away with it brilliant answer <laughs> quick, quick question for you then why are there two tides a day because you've got the moon very close to the earth and i can see that that's going to pull a bulge of water on that side of the earth facing the moon towards the moon but then on the opposite side of the earth coming around 12 hours later you've got a different tidal time so why, why are we getting two tides a day absolutely that's because essentially you're shielding you're shielding the moon from the water using the earth essentially to in the middle so you'll end up with uh, a bulge on that side as well and obviously these things are going round, so you have two a day because they keep going round. Thanks for that, Matt. Talking of, uh, of tides and that kind of thing, uh, here's one for you, Kate, and it's from Liz. Hi, Naked Scientists. How deep do you have to go under the sea to be in complete darkness? How deep do you have to go? So I actually wrote down the numbers because I am bad with numbers if we didn't get that from the quiz. <laughs> but 1,000 metres is the official cutoff point where it's called the aphotic zone. So anything deeper than 1,000 metres, no sunlight will be coming from the surface. However, you will not be in total darkness because animals make their own light. Uh, so there's loads of bioluminescent organisms found at these kind of depths and so while the background that you're looking at these animals at will be totally dark uh, as far as like there's no sunlight um, you will see the bioluminescence Matt so I, I think maybe correct me if I'm wrong is that connected to the idea of an optical depth down into the water because it's the same principle as when you're driving along through fog you only ever see to what we call one optical depth which is the point at which half of your, your photons get scattered. <laughs> so that's you're always seeing to one, one optical depth when you're driving through fog. And I, I'm guessing maybe it's a similar thing when you have the water. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what one of the reasons that studying animals 
vision underwater is really great because you have this um, highly predicted spectrum of light from the surface to depth uh, based on just the physics of how light interacts with water molecules and the stuff that's dissolved in water. So animals that um, fish, marine species that live close to the surface, they're seeing the full spectrum of light because it hasn't been soaked up yet. But the deeper you go, the less and less red light there there is in the water. And, And once you get really, really deep, there's almost no light. So does that mean then that the animals that make light are making any colors of light or do they tend to make make light of certain colors that and they can see it but the other animals can't i'd say most of the bioluminescence that you have down in the open ocean uh at depth is going to be kind of on the blue green end of the spectrum uh, but there are a few particularly the the dragonfish uh is this stomid, really stomid fish yeah they, they actually have uh, bioluminescent patches underneath their eyes that are red and because there's no red light that is at that kind of depth, no one can see it, basically, except these guys can. So it's so like being got spotlighted. These, yeah, they've got these, like, stealth scopes, and they're just scooping so around t- in the they dark. they can use it to talk to each other, and they can use it to see the things that they want to eat, but the thing Correct. that they're after can't see it's being spotlit yep. by. Like, isn't that, isn't that like, incredible? Yeah, and there's two ways that you can make bioluminescence. The animal can actually either synthesize the enzymes and all the molecules themselves, or they can have an organ that cultures a bacteria that does it for them. And animals that live closer to the shore, where that the light environment, I guess at shallower depths, where you have um, more of those organics I mentioned earlier, the gelb stuff, they will actually have red-shifted bioluminescence. Isn't the marine realm an amazing place? Now, there's a really interesting story this week, Kate, for people who are keen on kayaking. You tell the story because it was fascinating to read this. Yeah. Well, there's this amazing movement that's happening right now where there's all of this open source technology uh, that's available to just normal people who are just really keen. It's not all isolated to people with a lot of money or who have are working in labs and they're experts. So what this research group did is they developed a data tracking system that you can mount onto a kayak specifically is what they they were targeted on but you can also put it on a canoe or a paddleboard or really any kind of pleasure watercraft that is is paddle powered and it turns information from the environment into an auditory signal or sound. So you can basically play music based on changes in temperature. So it'll play a higher note from a digital thermometer. So it converts that information from the thermometer into a digital tone that changes in its frequency depending on if it is uh, warmer or colder. So higher temperatures, higher note, lower temperatures, lower note. So you can be paddling along and go... If you're going through different temperatures, people go on these sorts of pursuits to get away from it all. It sounds sounds like the reverse. <laughs> yeah, well, it's um, it has a very artistic element to it. So if you are interested in kind of creating auditory soundscapes and just enjoying something like that, it has that kind of element to it. But what is more important is that it's actual data that this open source thing you can build is collecting. And so what they talk about that's most important is that there aren't a lot of very large data sets for changes in temperature or changes in the soundscapes of harder to reach waterways like estuaries, for instance, where a lot of people would be using these boats. And so because as you're going, the little computer called a Raspberry Pi that's the kind of heart of this is uploading your data 
as well as your GPS coordinates. So it can generate these maps that go to public databases, then scientists can access and do science with uh, related to climate change and how things are changing in aquatic systems. And it's, it's really cool, and I really want to build one with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you're on the programme, Kate, you can tell us how you got on. Okay. But to maybe wait for the weather to be nice, which might take a while in this country, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, actually go back in time a bit and uh, ask uh, answer this question, Patrick, if you could for us, on dinosaurs. Could we use genetic engineering to make super dinosaurs? Wonders Georgia. What do you think? Ever since Jurassic Park came out, I think this question has been of interest. That What happened in that movie is they found a mosquito in amber that had bitten a dinosaur right before it was preserved and they could recover DNA um, and then use that to resurrect the dinosaur. The unfortunate reality is that the half-life of DNA is about 500 years, and the dinosaurs became extinct 60 million years ago or so. So the likelihood of finding well-preserved dinosaur DNA is almost impossible. But it's not to say it's impossible. However, there are scientists working on the woolly mammoth um, because it went extinct only about 4,000 years ago. So they've been able to find plenty of good DNA in the frozen tundra. Uh, and so they're editing using this CRISPR technology that we were talking to actually edit the genome of the Asian elephant in order to make it more woolly mammoth-like as an attempt to resurrect it. So it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Not a dinosaur, though. No, not a dinosaur. So you don't, you don't think there's any chance? Because we had SK Villaslav here on the programme well, a month or so ago, and he was uh, saying he's got the record at the moment for the oldest remains that he's managed to get DNA from at around it's about 700,000 right? yeah, years. 700, so that, that's you're saying the DNA every 500 years, you get half as much as you had mm-hmm. before. Do you mean it falls apart more? Yeah, so it falls apart. So 700,000 to 65 million is a... Quite it's a big still jump. quite yeah. a big yeah. jump, yeah. But I'm I am an optimist for sure. So I'm hoping they figure it out. But they've got well preserved dinosaur bones. They haven't been able to get usable DNA out of it. But it may it may be better uh, in the future. This kind of technology is evolving very very quickly. Philip, I was just going to say, presumably you could go the other way. You could start with like a modern lizard and kind of back. Yeah. evolve it <laughs> turn a chicken into a raptor of some sort yeah i think you're onto something matt uh, we've got a question here from connie for you who says why is venus the only planet in our solar system that rotates clockwise while the others rotate counterclockwise is that in fact true does venus rotate the wrong way in well, inverted I, commas well i try not to judge um but you're absolutely right that uh basically all the planets the way that we view it they all rotate counterclockwise so if we were to stand above the solar system the sun is spinning counterclockwise the planets are orbiting counterclockwise and they're spinning counterclockwise with two notable exceptions so it's not just venus actually uranus is also tilted right so it's actually got its poles aligned with what we call the ecliptic so it's been knocked over 90 degrees roughly venus on the other hand is completely upside down okay the way that we see it so it looks like it's, it's been flipped and there's a few ideas unfortunately it's quite unsatisfactory there isn't a, a solid answer yet but the idea is that maybe in, there was some sort of interaction in the early solar system. There was this thing called planetesimals, which were flying around, doing all sorts of things, interacting, bumping into stuff. It's possible there was some sort of collision in its lifetime that flipped it. So from Venus's perspective, everything's normal. It's not done anything. It's still spinning the right way. It's just had a bad experience, had a bad day. <laughs> the, other, the other possibility is that, which people are investigating, is could it have actually slowed and then started spinning the other direction? And these are still unanswered questions. 
Would that be a bit like you can do the experiment with an egg? If you spin an egg, put your finger on and stop it, take your finger off, and because the innards of the egg have momentum, they can then make the egg spin. Is is someone saying that Venus could have something similar to that going on? It, I mean, it's possible. I think they're they're more, mostly investigating the tidal interactions between the Sun and Venus because Venus got incredibly dense atmosphere probably took an incredible amount of time but interesting egg analogy i'm sure there'll be some people who are listening and thinking oh that's my next that's my next research paper (laughs) kate what kind of experiments do you do to test these sort of things expensive ones Uh, (laughs) (laughs) like expensive computationally or just like what coming from biology i have no idea what so really what i would do in order to get to the answer we have to really understand the early time during the solar system and that's not an easy thing to do Okay, there are still some sort of rocks flying around that we can look at. There's all these carbonaceous meteorites, all these things from very early on in the solar system. But really, we need to study things like Jupiter, believe it or not, because we need to understand what it's made of, because that tells us about how the early solar system evolved. Because there's, there's some evidence to imply that Jupiter actually migrated from the outer solar system inwards, right? And which would mean it has actually a different chemical composition to what it would have if it was, if it was born in situ. So, you know, we have to explore these things to understand how did the solar system develop. I mean, maybe that will give us some answers, maybe it won't. What I know is it's not going to change the way Venus is spinning. (laughs) Matt, thank you very much. Quick one here for you, Patrick. We've got this question, is stress genetic and what about mental health? That's got quite strong genetic underpinnings, doesn't it, your tendency towards mental illness? Yeah, absolutely. So things like uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, what, what I study, developmental disorders, all have very strong genetic underpinnings. They're all different and generally the way they've been studied traditionally is looking at twins. So uh, you have monozygotic twins that have the exact same DNA and they're raised by the same family. And then dizygotic twins have, they share the same DNA that siblings would have. So half, but also shared by the same family. So if you look at over time, the way monozygotic twins versus dizygotic twins get disorders like these mental health issues, you can actually work out how much of it is genetic in basis and how much has to do with other effects. So the way you handle stress, almost certainly in part genetic, uh, also things like addiction, whether we're susceptible to become addicted to alcohol or or tobacco also have genetic underpinnings. So we're beginning to understand this and figure out how to alter it a lot better these days now that we can genome sequence hundreds of thousands of people. Does it work that you have a gene and that causes the condition or does the gene in some way influence your behavior that means you're more susceptible to becoming depressed or getting schizophrenia do we do we understand how it works yet yeah so we don't fully understand how how any of it works but i think both of those can be true so for instance there are specific molecules that affect how you actually metabolize drugs like tobacco uh, or even pharmaceuticals that we take so you can have a slightly different protein that means actually the way you break down caffeine or tobacco is different Um, But you can also have changes that affect your behavior and affect the way you interact with the substance. So this is commonly discussed in obesity, for instance, because you can you can affect the way people metabolize the food physically or you can affect their interaction with food and whether they're likely to continue eating when they're no longer hungry. So both of these things actually are at play. Philip, I was just going to say, how do you disentangle experimentally? how much of the influence or how much of your susceptibility to these things is environmental and how much is genetic? So the twin studies help in part because in one case they share half their DNA and the other case they share all their DNA, and but they have the same environmental influences. So if if something is fully genetic, then you would see that 
the dizygotic twins that share half their DNA will have the shared trait together half the time, whereas the full twins will have it 100% of the time. If it's only 25% genetic, then you'll see a different relationship, basically. And, and then there's also a lot of experimental techniques that you can, you can use to actually introduce changes and see how they affect it to try to get at this causal link. You know, genetics is beautiful because it doesn't have the reverse causality problem. You are born with your genome and you can't change it in general. Although, as we talked about earlier, you may be able to change it, but in general, you can't change it. So it's not that your behavior is changing your DNA. It's much more likely that your DNA is changing your behavior. And what percentage difference in risk do the genes that you're studying make to someone having depression or schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder? What's the, the, the loading or the contribution? So the very rare and severe disorders that I study, it's almost like night and day. If you have a mutation in the gene, then you're almost 100% chance of getting this disorder and it's going to be very severe. But I study very, very severe disorders. On the flip side, if you think about autism or or even schizophrenia, OCD, there are hundreds or thousands of independent, very small changes that actually just contribute a 2% risk or a 3% elevated risk over what we'd call kind of the baseline. So most disease is actually operating on this very complex genetic architecture. So there may well be the end point is becoming depressed or suffering OCD, but there may be many different genes, thousands of genes potentially, that could all make a tiny contribution or tip the balance a little bit. So it's not a given if you have this gene, you're going to get this condition. It, it'll just increase your likelihood of yes. going down that pathway. That's exactly right. Patrick, thanks very much. And there we must leave it. I'm afraid we have run out of time. Thank you very much to Kate Feller, Philip Broadwith, Matt Middleton and Patrick Short. The programme was put together this week by Izzy Clark. Do join us at the same time next week when we'll be delving into the physics beyond our solar system, sorting sci-fi from sci-fact and just in time for the new film. Join us for the science of Star Wars next week. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, until next time, goodbye. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows, and this is one we think you're going to love. Today in Focus is the daily news podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, every weekday as I bring you stories from across the UK and around the world. We'll take you to the front line of the climate emergency. The smoke smells like everything is on fire. Behind the scenes in Westminster. We're in the sort of political Wild West. And we'll cover the latest trends in technology and popular culture. TikTok, TikTok, buzz, buzz, buzz. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.